Hi, I'm Heidi. Um, The Bible reading is Mark chapter 14, and we're reading the whole chapter. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, or pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. On the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters... Tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, truly I tell you, One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it, new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, Even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, Today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, If I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, Sit here while I pray. 
He took Peter, James and John with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little further, fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, is the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. They took hold of him and arrested him. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you teaching in the temple, and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man wearing nothing but a linen cloth was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes assembled. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not agree even on this. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him and to beat him, saying, Prophesy. The temple servants also took him and slapped him. While Jesus was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maidservants came. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. 
Then he went out to the entryway and a rooster crowed. When the maidservant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, you certainly are one of them, since you're also a Galilean. Then he started to curse and swear, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Heidi. What a wonderful passage of the Bible. Great stories have twists that break the internet. They impact our thinking so much that we just have to debrief with someone, anyone. There's some great ones, aren't there? There's Kaiser Soze in The Unusual Suspects, if you've seen that, it's great. Or The I See Dead People in The Sixth Sense. Or Han's betrayal in Frozen. No, that's not really a twist. (laughs) A successful twist creates a drastic emotional change in the characters of the story and in the audience. So when Severus Snape, the hateful professor who picked on Harry, who took Dumbledore's life, was revealed as a triple spy, the backbone of good beating evil, that messed with the world. In 1998, sorry, 1980, millions of people went to see Star Wars, the sequel, The Empire Strikes Back. And to this day, 40-odd years later, the audience has to deal with the twist that Vader was Luke's father. Have a look at this. Now, Jesus' disciples are having a similar experience to that little boy in Mark 14. They were comfortable with Jesus. Three years they'd walked with him. But they'd forgotten why they were in Jerusalem. The king must die. The great replacement was about to happen. And so this chapter that Heidi read is an emotional roller coaster of twists. At each point, Jesus wants them to see something clearly about himself, about them, and the world we live in. All right, so let's go to dinner. Verse 3. It was two days before the Passover feast, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to Simon the leper's house for dinner. We think Simon was someone who'd been healed by Jesus. So John's gospel of telling the same story tells us that Mary, Martha and the risen Lazarus were also invited. That dinner, there would have been lots of great conversation, lots of laughter. Hey, Lazarus, what's on the other side? You can imagine the conversation. But then Mary, who loved to sit at Jesus' feet, brought out a family heirloom of perfume. That heirloom was worth $30,000 and she broke the seal on top. She couldn't go back from there and she poured it all over Jesus' head. 
Now, we know Mary's a believer at this point. She's not trying to get into Jesus's good books. The Holy Spirit led her to express her deep love for Jesus. And then the muttering started, the sound of snorting horses. One of the disciples scolded her like a child. Don't you know it's Passover when we care for the poor? What a disgusting waste. Mary shriveled under their glares. What would you have thought? But then the incredible twist. Look at verse 6. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Jesus standing between the disciples and this woman. And he says to them, it's not a disgusting waste. Her action is appropriate and beautiful. She has done this, and look at those two words, for me. He is saying, brothers, disciples, she, not you, have grasped the heart of Christianity. Because if you get Christianity, you move from me, 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 my needs, my church, my faith, to Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Mary is devoted to Jesus, for he is supreme, unique and loving. And so she wants to connect with him, communicate with with him, serve him at work and church and home everywhere. And then Jesus says, Mary has expressed even more than she knows. She has anointed her Lord for his death. Now, Jesus is not arguing against caring for the poor. If you've read any of Jesus' story, you'll know he always is caring for the poor. But Jesus wants to ensure we get the order right. We need to love God and then love others. And if you're a Christian here this morning who loves Jesus, you will serve the poor of Orange just like your saviour. But there will be many in Orange and many in Australia and many in the world who spend their life doing wonderful things for poor people and wonderful causes for the world, like climate change, but they will realise they have not been serving Jesus in this world and so will not be with Jesus in the next world. Mary shows us what following Jesus is about. He was worth more than anything in the world to her. Isn't that a lovely line? She gave all she had. Whatever she had, she gave it. Her love for Jesus went from her head to her hands to her wallet. But that was too much for Judas, wasn't it? Judas left the dinner party in disgust to arrange Jesus' betrayal. In verse 12, it's time for another feast, the feast of Passover. Passover was a time for God's people Israel to remember a past deliverance and to look forward in hope for God to act again. And it was absolutely normal for Jesus to celebrate Passover. He'd done it for 30 years. 
The problem, in verse 12, is they couldn't find a room. So Jesus shows his disciples that he's in complete control. And it's comedic, isn't it? See what Jesus says? Hey, boys, go to Jerusalem. It's full of visitors. Find a guy with a water jar. Stalk him, and he will lead you to my guy. Everything will be ready. Now, it's real weird, right? Why? I think it's weird because it will mean that Judas would not be able to betray Jesus at that point. Now, the disciples, they find the room, just as Jesus told them. And what we're seeing here in Mark 14 is Jesus is in control even as the dark times approach. And then the feast begins. They start to eat and Jesus drops a clangor. He would be betrayed and he knows who will do it. He says it's going to be a friend, just as the Old Testament said. Now, we know that's Judas, don't we? And we can imagine or we can think that Judas is a puppet here. It's not his fault. He's just doing what had to happen. But that's actually never how God's control works. Judas is completely responsible for his choices. He, nor us, can ever blame God for our sin. You'll never get to blame God for the fair consequences a holy God gives you for your sin. But his actions never surprise Jesus. God uses the mess of our world and even the choices of sinful people like Judas to achieve his plans. Well, the feast continued, didn't it? And Jesus gave a retelling of the great story of deliverance. A thousand years ago in Egypt, God had provided a way for his people to escape his fair judgment. God's people killed a lamb instead of their firstborn son. And they got the blood of the lamb and they painted it on their door frames. And then they sheltered under that blood and the angel of the Lord passed over them. Then the house, the head of the house would say the same words that had been used for a thousand years. This is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. But this time there's a twist. See it there in verse 22? Jesus took bread. He blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. What? Jesus rewrote Passover. Who does that? Imagine David, King David rewriting. Imagine Daniel doing it. No one rewrites Passover, but it's deliberate. What Jesus is doing with the bread and the wine is not just giving us a ceremony to do in church. That's not what it's about. What it is, is this. It's a practical lesson showing that every Passover feast for the last thousand years was pointing to that moment, that Jesus is the great and final Passover lamb. 
that Jesus' body would be broken for their sins, that Jesus' blood would be poured out to give sinners life. And what God promises is that anyone who shelters under Jesus' blood will be saved from God's wrath. Those who trust in Jesus' death on their behalf will be welcomed into the kingdom of God. For a thousand years, the Jews had looked backwards, but from this moment on, deliverance and hope would be found at the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus then leads them into a private garden on the Mount of Olives so he could pray. Those of you who've read Mark know that this happens three times in Mark's gospel, Jesus going away to pray. And each of those three times corresponds with a time of great temptation for Jesus. We've been used to unflappable Jesus, but now he is deeply distressed by what is coming. The words here in Mark mean he was surrounded by sorrow like being in a room where there's no light. But Jesus is not just troubled by his physical death. Many Christians have faced horrible, unjust deaths with courage. This week marks the 517th anniversary of Thomas Cramner's death on that spot. What Jesus was troubled by was the cup. The cup is a metaphor in the Bible for God's just wrath against human evil. It's God's wrath against our constant rejection of our maker. It's God's wrath against the way humans have killed millions of other humans, of the jealousy in our heart, the hatred in our heart, the greed in our heart, our lying and our lust. And it is the cup that you and I deserve but the Passover lamb will drink. And so as Jesus looks into the cup, it overwhelms him. And there's a twist. Is there another way? Look at verse 35. Jesus went a little further. He fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Jesus is not stumbling. He's not doubting. He is asking his father if there was another way to fulfill his mission without the cup, without facing the wrath of his holy father. Only Jesus fully understands the wrath that you and I deserve. And then Jesus prayed some words that sealed your salvation. Words that mean that you or I will never, ever, ever, ever have to drink that cup. See it there in verse 36? And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus' desire to obey his father was bigger than his self-preservation. And so he commits unconditionally to his father's will, as he's always done. 
and Jesus drinks the cup to its dregs. Jesus drinks the cup to its dregs. Jesus went to death for our sins. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. The death, it's not just a wonderful example of sacrifice. No, because of Jesus' great love, he chose to shoulder the sins of the world and not leave the world to shoulder its sins. And what that means is you can go and face death confidently at any day it comes because of the death he faced. And no matter what you have done this week, no matter what grievous, horrible sin you've done in private or in public, you never have to run away from Jesus because every sin can be dealt with. And that little prayer, not what I will but what you will, That is a wonderful model of how to live your life every day. Because when you're wrestling with a complex relationship with a child or a friend, when you face great temptation online or offline, when you're offered something corrupt at work or school, when you're trying to work out what to do with so much spare money in your bank account, not what I will but what you will, God. Dear God, guide me by your words. Help me to obey. Suddenly the noise of the mob reached Jesus. It was chaos. Judas kissing his friend, the mob excited for his fight, Peter with his bread knife, the disciples petrified, bolting for the hills. Jesus, calm and in control. You know what Jesus does there? He pulls out the script and he points to the religious leaders and he said, boys, you walked in on cue. All your plotting fits in the plan of God. The scriptures are being fulfilled. In our final scene, the camera follows two characters. It's like having a split screen on your TV. You've got the story of Jesus next to the story of Peter happening simultaneously. Let's look at Peter. Peter had fled with the others, verse 50. But he came back. Peter came back. He came right in close into the courtyard of the high priest. And so we see Jesus upstairs on trial, Peter downstairs waiting, faithful to Jesus, just as he promised. And the problem for those of us who've read the Bible is we know the end of the story and that means we dismiss Peter quickly. We go, silly Peter, that's unfair. Up to this point in Jesus' story, Peter had been bold, wholehearted, obedient. He was the first disciple to follow Jesus, the first to confess he was the Christ. He's always the most interested in listening to Jesus. He's the only one who promises to stay faithful. He is the last glimmer of hope in a dark world. Verse 67. When the high priest's maidservant saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. 
Peter fails miserably. At the moment, Peter was meant to deny himself and stand with his Lord. He does the opposite. Do you remember chapter 8? Jesus said, deny yourself and follow me. Jesus denies even knowing Jesus. Don't be ashamed of me, Jesus said. Peter invokes a curse instead of following Jesus. And then we can hear the rooster crow twice. And Peter is broken. I hope you're not sitting there this morning thinking, oh, gotcha, Peter. We knew it. Because the truth is, what is true of Peter is true of all of us. If Peter couldn't be faithful, there is no way you can. We need to grasp our weakness, not our superiority over Peter. Our spirit can be very willing this morning, but we are all weak. We are incapable of the obedience we desire and the obedience we need. And what Peter teaches us is that we need a saviour. Okay, let's press rewind. Let's go back and look at Jesus. Same time period. Pete, Jesus had been taken to the home of the high priest. The Sanhedrin, it's the middle of the night, the Sanhedrin have flocked in by torchlight and Jesus is sitting in the middle of the room being cross-examined by the best lawyers in Jerusalem. It looks legal, doesn't it? But it's completely illegal. It broke Jewish law. It was at night, it was outside the temple, it was without a quorum, but the leaders aren't looking for truth. They're looking to kill Jesus. So they try false witnesses, fail, misquote Jesus, failed, so the high priest steps up. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Verse 62, I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus replies with a confession and a terrible warning. He's the Messiah. He is the promised saviour and he will judge them. They think they're judging Jesus right now, but the truth is that he will judge them. One day those leaders and us will come before King Jesus and he will decide our future. It's an amazing split screen, isn't it? You've got Peter outside wanting to escape and save his life and inside Jesus is doing absolutely anything he can to ensure he goes to his death that the Father had planned. Jesus is our wonderful, beautiful Saviour. Now, nothing quite upsets football fans than a biased commentator. Queenslanders hate Phil Gould because he's biased. New South Wales hate Fatty Vaughton because he's biased. But we are all biased. And it shapes how we live. And so in Mark 14, what is Jesus doing in these really long passages? Jesus is popping our bias balloons about the world we live in and ourselves. Many of us have very rose-coloured views of our world in orange. 
we say things like, the world is our oyster. It has a few bad eggs, but we can befriend it, we can succeed, we can enjoy its benefits. But what did we see over those 72 verses? We saw two systems at work. We saw God's system with God's son walking to a cross and we saw the world seeking to kill him. Why did the world want to kill Jesus? Because they want to live autonomous from God. They want to live without God's influence, which is all Adam and Eve ever wanted. That is the same as our time. Please never think your culture is neutral. The gospel of secularism being taught in schools, universities, workplace, YouTube, everywhere is live without God. My truth to live my way. If we befriend the world, we will adopt that goal. We will seek to live outside the influence of God. As Jesus said, a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Secondly, we've got biased views of ourselves. We all drink the humanistic bubbler that says, we're strong, we're in control, we're not too bad, and more than often we're right. And so, right, it's really easy, easy this morning to look down on Peter. It's really easy to look down on those disciples, the religious leaders and other Christians in orange. But walk with Jesus through Mark 14. We would have shook our head at Mary. We would have snickered at Peter. But we're no better. How quick have you been to deny Jesus at work this week? How quick are we to save our own lives, our own reputation, our own holiday plans, instead of standing next to Jesus? How quick are we to give in to temptation? You see, what Jesus is doing is bursting our bias bubbles of ourselves. I am weak. And you are weak. And we need a saviour. Self-dependence is the one thing that will stop you becoming a Christian. Self-dependence is the one thing that will stop you growing as a Christian. The wonderful news of the gospel is Jesus is a great saviour. He saves weak people, failures. He gives forgiveness and life to those who renounce self-dependence and depend on him. And I know most of you totally agree with that, but it's never about the understanding. Because if you get it, you will have adoration like Mary. Everyone will see that Jesus is the most important thing to you. And so how much is Jesus worth to you? As Isaac Watts says, were the whole realm of nature mine that were at present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, 
Mai o. Amen.